Ian is going to be picking up the story. Um, you may recall we had Jill Webber did an amazing teaching last time. And if you haven't listened to it, if you weren't here, I'd really encourage you to listen to it online. Um, so she went through the story of Abraham, how God interrupted Abraham's life and invited him on a journey. And she spoke about the journey not being the final destination, but the process that Abraham went through in that. Then she moved through Isaac and Jacob, and then she ended on Joseph and ended up saying that God used Joseph as a door of salvation for his family, which was incredible. So this is where Ian picks up. So I should just pray for you, Ian. And Ian is going to be equally amazing. <laughs> Please, God. Yeah, Father God, we just um, thank you for Ian being here this morning, God. And I just pray that you help us to have clear hearts and hear clear minds to hear from you, Father God. I just pray that you give him the words to speak, God, as we just delve deeper into the story of Moses, God. We just pray that your will be done this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Is this for recording? So if I... Great to be here, thank you. Sorry about the uh, slight lateness of arrival, but it's uh, Jackie, Jackie has told me off on the way back. So, uh, yeah, I mean the uh, this this section is called "Birth of the Birth of a Nation." It's really picking up the story uh, from Joseph and going. It's all the characters involved, you know, it's about Moses, Ten Commandments, the Exodus, and so on. So it's a huge amount to cover, far too much, really, for, you know, the sort of time slot we, ha we have. So I'm going to try and do, you know, bring in a few different bits and pieces to keep it, keep, uh, keep us engaged and so on. So I actually felt I wanted to start with a bit of a, a diversion, really, and, I, you know, it might be something that's obvious to all of you, but it's something that is becoming more and more meaningful to me, that the taking the really big picture, there is a huge power in being connected to a story. And uh, we all, I, I think it's a deep human need to actually <coughs> feel part of a story that has a beginning, that has actors, that has a, a narrative unfolding, coming towards a conclusion, because it gives us meaning, gives meaning to our lives. I, I remember uh, I lived in Vienna for a few years, did the whole Bible smuggling thing that... Uh, few people know about but I went back for a reunion about 15 years later and I'd left sort of quite suddenly but it had been a very intense time and I, I didn't sort of leave properly in a sense because I didn't have time to say goodbyes and what have you. And I went back for this reunion and then I remember over the over the two or three days I cried most of the time <laughs> but I remember the different team leaders stood up and I, I hadn't been in leadership then so I didn't know most of this but you know, one, one couple stood up and talked about um, the shock it was when their 22-year-old boy went back to the States to study and the next day heard that he just was playing basketball and dropped dead. And they were talking about, the, you know, being in Austria and their son doing that and how could God allow that and how heaven had become much more real because of what they'd been through. And I thought, wow. And then the next person stood up and talked about how all, you know, their, their daughter had had a brain tumour and had an operation and had survived, but how the team had helped them through that. Then someone else stood up and talked about how when he was in leadership, 
they had a total breakdown of relationship and the four and five key leaders weren't even talking to each other and couldn't be in the same room together, but somehow they came through that. And then the final guy got up and he he was talking and it all seemed very normal and easy going. And then, then right at the end he said, and for those of you concerned about my health, and he was HIV positive through, through a sort of blood transfusion he'd had. And, and, and what really hit me was this group of people had changed, had had a big impact in changing Eastern Europe. I've written a story together, but it's not a story that's just sailing along through victory to victory. It's a story that's come out of pain, and that, that's what really hit me. I've been part of that uh, that story. Uh, you know, your, your families are probably similar to ours. You know, you get together, and you tell the same stories every Christmas, the, the sort of catalogue of stories that come out. And on one hand, they're boring, but on the other hand, they, you, everyone's sitting there thinking... This is us, you know. This is who, this is who we are, and um, I think without a connection to stories, people lose hope, and they lose a sense that they have any any future. And it's quite interesting. You look at Native American tribes who end up on reservations, or when Stalin came to power in Russia, he uprooted all the the sort of nomadic uh, black farmer, you know, the, the, the nomads there, they were all rounded up and put in settled camps, just like the Native American tribes were. And what you see is a catalogue of loss of hope, you know, alcoholism, gambling, and so on, because they've lost their story. They've lost a connection with who, who they are. Um, I was out in Ibiza last week talking to Danny and Liddy, who are with 24-7 there, and they work with the Roma, the Roma gypsy community there. And I didn't realise the Roma gypsy community in Ibiza town, they live in a sort of district called Sapenia. A lot of them never leave. They actually, there are people who go out to do the shopping for the community and bring it back. But most others, because they have such a strong sense of identity that has been forged through pain and rejection, that they're, they're sort of, it's, it's, it's so important to them they hold on to their, their story. So I thought we'd start with a little bit of a song. I, I, it's a bit of a risk, this. I love this song. Um, you might not, but it's, uh, it's it, a friend brought it to me a few years ago, and something in it grabbed me about this whole thing, about stories. It's a, it's a band called Show of Hands, who are like from the West Country, you know, sort of folk singers. So there you go.
three folk singers in a pub near Wells. Well, I've got a vision of urban sprawl. It's pubs where no one ever sings at all. And everyone stares at a great big screen. Overpaid soccer stars, prancing teams, Australian soap. To me, it's not, there's nothing in that that is falsely nationalistic. It's actually a cry for a reconnection to stories and a reconnection. And, you know, for me, for our country at the moment, which is why there's a little bit of a diversion, but it will come into the growth story in a minute, I think so many of us have been uprooted from traditional communities, or, you know, the farmers, the miners, the dockers, you know, that's all, that's all gone. And there's sort of a heart cry to what is our story. And our story doesn't come from demeaning other people's stories. Actually, our story comes from celebrating the stories of other cultures and other nations and so on. It's almost as we celebrate that, we give ourselves permission to have our, have our own story. But I think, I think there is a huge desire for that. And our identity comes through our story. We have our own personal family story. We have a story of our shared tribe and people. Um, but then we also have our story as we come to Christ. We, have, we are grafted in, the scripture says, to the story of all stories. And the story that you're looking at through God's story is, is not a story, it's our story. Just as we have our own different aspects to our story as well. And um, <coughs> I think it's very important. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, for the first time ever, going to Israel this week. And we're in Bethlehem, we're in Jerusalem, and then we're going on to the West Bank and Palestinians. And, that, and, and there again, you see the same thing of, of the Jews desperately. It's almost like they're trying to, Israel is trying to protect its story, hold on to its story, but possibly in a false way by taking away the story of other people. And the Palestinians have a story as well. And it's, 
for me, the fulfillment of the kingdom is enabling all peoples to celebrate their, di- their uniqueness and their story and so on, which is important to hear in the UK as it is abroad. So, um, so the, and ultimately, the Jewish people will only find their identity in Christ. And as we become secure in our story, actually it means we can embrace the alien, <laughs> the foreigner, the, the stranger in our midst. We say, welcome, because we know who we are and we don't, we don't feel threatened anymore. And um, in any story, I think the beginning is a key. It's the origins. And it's who we are, what we are, who were the, who were the characters involved. When we then tell those stories, they're so and we keep telling them because they're our identity. If we lose hold of those stories, something we begin to lose something very deep within ourselves. And um, I mean, I must have told the story of st- the staff of 24-7 yeah, probably hundreds of times in different contexts. You know, about the first caravan, about Gilgrim's or Bojangles and everything, everything like that. So it's, um, and that's important. And uh, I was in, when I was in OM, they had their stories of their all nights of prayer, the first mission trips that went to Mexico, uh, all that sort of thing. And then you're in this very large sort of um, missions movement, but it begins with a story, with an origin, where you say, even those who are coming in years later, are we able to get rid of that? Is it me? Am I doing it? All right, there you go. Okay. Um, and, but everyone who's joined in later, that, that story becomes their story as well. So, um, and organizations are held together by rules and regulations. Movements and families are held together by stories. That's the foundation of stories and relationships. So, here we go. We're going to look at this sort of section as we as we go through, and um, I don't know what Jill I don't know what Jill said, but um, you know, I think it's highly likely that the first five books of Scripture were, in a sense, they were written by Moses because they were the oral tradition of what Moses brought and what happened. But it, there's a there's a strong case that it's actually when the Jews were in exile later on in Babylon that they took all these mo- this Moses sort of content and put it into books which gave them a sense of identity and the fact they were in exile. They were in exile for 70 years. Uh, you'll come on to that, I'm sure, in a, in a time or two. And we have this Jill, Jill I'm sure, brilliantly, well, I've been told, <laughs> I've been told brilliantly, uh, looks at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs, the promise carriers. And even there, you begin to see themes. I think as we look through this story, it's really good to think. There are, there are so you, it's looking for big themes, and we'll have a few of those this morning, that I think are very relevant to us as individuals and as communities, whatever era. And it's also looking for the whispers of Jesus. Where can you already begin to see the fulfillment of the story, the, the story, because all this is doing is pointing forward to Christ the whispers of Jesus, even in these uh, events. So, you know, you had the patriarchs with their supernatural encounters with angels being led into 
Egypt and so on. And the promise to Abraham is this in Genesis 15, 13. It says, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and, and ill-treated. So right at the beginning of the promise, the promise that your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the sand on the beaches and the stars in the heavens. But notice here they will begin by being slaves for 400 years. So in a sense, the womb of the promise was slavery. The womb of the promise was being submissive to an oppressor. The womb of the promise was a cry for deliverance. And we read a bit later on about how the Israelites just groaned. They, they probably weren't even praying. They were just groaning with the oppression. But God heard that as prayer and brought deliverance. And I think we can already begin to see themes here. We can begin to see themes of how many of the promise carriers in Scripture, the heroes of faith, were forged and formed in obscurity, perhaps even slavery. Samuel, his parents were nobodies up from the hill country. David was out looking after his sheep. Ruth, you know, the story of Ruth and the exile in Babylon and so on. So the womb of the promise in our lives is often in the place of obscurity. And often we, and there's a gap as we'll see as we go through, um, there's a gap often between the promise being given and the promise being the inheritance being received. And that can be a long time. And it was for them and it was for Moses and it is for a huge number of the heroes of faith. So basically at this point we have the Jews, uh, Joseph and his brothers, 12 tribes, 70 people who are in Egypt. It's deliverance. All is good. Uh, but they were there for 430 years. So if we went back 430 years, where would that be? Anyone quick, quick, quick. 20, 19, minus 430. Yeah, probably, late, yeah, late, late 1500s. Yeah, getting close, getting close. So you imagine... Yeah, she was, yeah, up to 1603. So, 1601. Yeah. <laughs> so, you imagine it's it, it, Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne up to now. That's how long they were slaves. And it, became, it, it was because God blessed them. God blessed them. And as he blessed them, they got prosperous. They got, I mean, by the time, I, I believe it's 2 million. So the 70, by the end of the 430 years, had become 2 million. <coughs> And uh, the Egyptians were threatened, like we were saying, by the other in their midst. So they began to oppress, discriminate, and so on. And by the, then they were just working, making bricks. And then Pharaoh, in a, probably a fit of pique, said, oh, they're, they're moaning a bit or whatever. He said, well, let them cut their own straw. It's like it was oppression upon oppression upon oppression. And there was no way out. And there are lots of people, just as another side note, in our world today, who have similar, the Kurds, the Kurdish people are, have a very similar story. In fact, I remember doing some, they're Muslim, but I remember doing some evangelism years ago with them, and they said, our favourite people in the world are the Jews, because the Kurds and the Jews, we're the only people of that size that don't have our own 
nation. It's not quite true, but that's how they saw things. You know, we don't have our own nation and we've been nomadic. The Uyghurs, if you know the Uyghurs in China, there are about a million or so of them have just been rounded up and we've had friends who've been thrown out from China who were missionaries there and their friends were just put in concentration camps really by the, by the Chinese. Tibetans in China are very similar. And, uh, but probably down the history, the, the, the people who've experienced that the most have been the Jews. You know, you look at their history in Europe of being the pogroms, or obviously the Holocaust or everything, it's been that, that sort of prospering, but because there's a difference and a distinctiveness, people begin to, you know, persecute and so on, and, and, and that happens. So um, they were worked ruthlessly, and at this point there came the seed of deliverance. And again, you can see in Scripture, again and again and again, when there seems to be no hope, somewhere in the backwoods, <laughs> somewhere in the hidden place, deliverance was beginning, and it was usually with one person, a seed of promise with one person. So we've seen it with, with Joseph. We definitely see it with Samuel and David. I think that's a fantastic... Anyway, let's go ahead. Someone else is going to do that. Uh, pardon? <laughs> they're, they're not here yet. No, they're characters to come. I don't want... That's a spoiler. Spoiler, yeah. Um, so, and then added to that, you have the Pharaoh at the time uh, was so threatened by the Jews that he ordered all the male babies to be killed. And we must assume that that was largely carried out. Apart from this one baby, Moses, who was found in the bulrushes and uh, brought up in, in, you know, in, Pharaoh, in the Pharaoh's house. Have you seen the film? Have you seen any films about Moses? Oh, really? It'd be great, great film to watch. And, um, but Moses was not a superhero. Moses, as all the biblical heroes was, was very human. So we see going through, the first 40 years of his life was just basically God's protection, salvation of him, protecting him. The next 40 years, they lived a long time. The next 40 years was really him in the wilderness, just looking after sheep and so on. And then at 80 was his point of encounter, his point of commissioning and his point of ministry. So there's hope for all of us. Um, and uh, I, again, you can see that theme throughout scripture of salvation and deliverance, wilderness, and then inheritance and fruitfulness and fulfillment. You see it going through again and again, and I'm sure different ones of us in this room would have that, that story of going, you know, having promise, but then being led out into some backwater somewhere. So, but the north to 40 salvation, 40 to 80 wilderness, and at that point, where that, where the, why the wilderness happened was, when he was 40, he saw an Egyptian and an Israelite fighting and came in and killed the Egyptian. <coughs> So he was a deliverer. He delivered Israel at that point. But he did it in his own strength. He did it hot-headedly hot and so on. And because of that, he had to be sent away into the wilderness. He was there for 40 years just looking after the sheep. So it's almost like self-effort. We have self-confidence. We have the promise and we have self-confidence. This is We're going to do this. We're going to change the world. And God so often leads us into a place where 
it breaks us. It breaks that self-confidence, so we realise it's him that's going to change the world. We're just players in the story. And then at 80, the point of encounter. Does anyone know what the point of encounter was for him with the presence of God? The burning bush. So he sees this bush burning, and then he meets God as I am. I am that I am. He has this encounter with God that changes, and then there's the commissioning and so on. And so let's look at where's my Exodus. If someone could just read this, Exodus 3, 4, 4 to 15. When you do this, does, some, does one person normally read everything, or do you take it in turns to a couple of verses each? Have you? I don't want to read it. So if someone could start doing a few and then stop, and uh, when you hesitate, someone else would come in and pick up. Exodus 3, verse 4. 4 to 15, yeah. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh uh, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you must worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am who sent me to you. God, said, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Okay, anyone got any just comments just from that little passage in terms of what we've been looking at in terms of the story? Anything that springs out before we move on? So um, I guess God knows that. And, uh, 
starts with reassurance, as he often does yeah. in the scripture. Yeah. I mean, he, and he was very underconfident speaking. He was very underconfident. Which actually, Paul, I think, Paul said, I, I'm not a, I've never been a great speaker. I don't come with you with wise words. So it's, um, yeah, underconfident. Anything else? And actually, if you look at that, it says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he says, this is my name, and I'm to remember from generation to generation. So it's almost looking back and then looking forward and saying, you're just part of, you know, this point of revelation with the Holy God is you being almost anointed to be play your part in the story as we're all playing our part in the story. At all. Yeah. Yeah. At all. No, this was, was key. So, um, I think many of us, I certainly, my experience sort of mirrors some of this, not that I'm Moses. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, for me, there was a point of salvation. We have, we have the, you know, the way, before we come to Jesus, there's that, the way God looks after our lives anyway and he's involved in our lives even though we don't know him but that point of salvation for me when I was 17 and really that was a very dramatic thing it was an encounter but it was mixed with a lot of self-confidence a lot of rah-rah change the world type stuff and then you know God took me on a journey over quite a few years actually of being well, I it felt to me like in the wilderness, it felt to me like I'd lost any sense of calling or any sense of ministry, and that you know that was it. And then, and then I remember it came to you know the lowest point. Jackie and I were sort of trying to find what we should be doing together for the Lord, and we were pushing different doors and t making some choices. And then we made a choice that we thought would open up, and it actually closed very quickly. And then it was, oh, well, maybe in two years we can revisit that choice. And, and I remember going to a, a prayer meeting at our church at the time in Guildford. And, and um, I was at the back and uh, the lady leading it said, I just feel before we start, the Lord wants to say to someone here, well done, good and faithful servant. And uh, not huge words, but at that point, it, something cracked in me and I just wept at the back. And I think that was the beginning of a turning point of actually... It was, in a sense, it was a wilderness experience. And I remember praying, God, I don't care if I never speak on a platform or famous or do anything great, but if I can find, if you can find me anything useful to do for you, I'll do it with all my heart. That was my prayer at the back. And I think, and I'd like to say I would change the next day. It didn't. It was another year or two. But it, I think that was the turning point. And I think, you know, as I've spoken to a lot of people, that's the experience they've gone through. So this whole thing of salvation to wilderness to encounter. And uh, what we're seeing here is this journey, salvation, wilderness to encounter for the Israelites is a, is a journey from slavery into their inheritance. 
from being beaten and making bricks out of straw and having to cut their own straw and everything and having, having their male children killed to inheriting a good and a large spacious land, a land of milk and honey. This is the journey they're on. So, um, deliverance from slavery. I'm, I'm very aware of time here, so I, I, who knows where we'll get to by the time we're up, we're up to that. But uh, deliverance from slavery. So, the story has a start, it has its characters, and then any great story has, at its best, miraculous events right at the beginning that you can tell that story from generation to generation to generation, which is what the Jews have done, of the way they were delivered. I, I had a friend many years ago. He, he led a ministry into Eastern Europe. He was from Russian-Armenian background. His family had been Pentecostals in Russia, so his grandparents' era. And they were persecuted under Stalin. And they were praying and and God literally led them on a sort of deliverance-type journey. They uprooted themselves from where they were. And rather than going uh, west, which would have been the natural way to go to Europe, God told them to go east towards China. So they, started, they just started walking. And at one point, they got a, a, a ride on a train. And, uh, and as, they were going, as they were going along, um, the train stopped and broke down and then when it restarted um, their carriage was uncoupled at the back so they were left stuck and the train went on and they cried out to God and prayed da, da, da. and then when they, they later found out that the train that they were on was ambushed by uh, rebels and many of the people on the train were killed so God rescued them then they got to um, China and they settled in Nanking. And there was a huge storm one night. But the, the, they felt God say to them, the Holy Spirit say, you need to leave Nanking tonight. And, they, and some people said, no, let's wait till the storm is gone. And others said, no, God has said to us, we need to leave tonight, we need to go tonight. And that, that night, the siege of Nanking began, again, with with you know, many, many deaths. It's a horrific story of the, of the Second World War as, um, as the Japanese surrounded it. So it's... And they have story after story after story like that. And, and it, what's interesting is they ended up settling in... And, and Al, was, Al was born in, uh, in China. He's, he's a very small guy anyway, but when he was born, they, they thought he wouldn't survive. And they were, they were praying. It was almost like he died because they couldn't get enough nutrition because there was no food. They couldn't get enough nutrition to keep him alive. And they said as they were praying, sort of suddenly, he just suddenly sat up, bolt upright in bed, and he was healed. And that was his birth. And then he's later on leading a ministry, ministering back into communist Soviet Union and everything. And you can just see the, the hand of God on that, on that family. And one other, I mean, they had so many stories. And they used to tell these stories all the time in their community, I'm sure. But one of them was they were in San Francisco and um, I think it was the grandfather died. And uh, at that point, one of the other people of the community came around and said, I've just had a vision and it was of the grandfather. And he was in, you know, he was in meeting Jesus. And it says, you know, this thing about in my house there are many 
mansions. And they said he had his own house. But they said what was fantastic, and this is the vision the person had had, it was a Russian sort of dacha type house. It was a typical house that they would have, he would have lived in as a child, even though he was in exile in a way in America. And, uh, but again, those, they had those stories. And in the same way, we have this. So we have this story of, that is fairly well known, of Pharaoh hardening his heart. The first, quite a number of the first ones, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It transitions a bit later on to the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's almost like Pharaoh set himself on a journey when he could have changed, but at the point it became so fixed it couldn't, it couldn't be changed. And during that time, we have all these different um, pestilences that are sent by the Lord, judgments that are sent by the Lord to try and change Pharaoh's heart. So there are um, ten of them. So just, and this is like eggheads. There's no, there's no, there's no prize here. It's purely, it's purely for your own self-satisfaction. But just get into groups of three and four and see how many of the different uh, plagues, the plagues of Egypt you can get. And no cheating. I'm trusting you here, Christy. We've got four or five minutes, so... Plague of Vampires. Is, which version is that in? The new. Yeah. <laughs> the Marvel version. Anyone got nine? Uh, so quite a few got nine. Oh, right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's see. So um, 
Yeah, so let, let, let's... Yeah. <laughs> anyone got a pen? I can just borrow a quick... Yeah. Thank you. So anyone wants to shout out the ones they got? So let's... let's... Flies. Flies. Uh, yeah, flies is one. Frogs. Hail. Hail, uh, yeah, hail, yeah. Darkness. Darkness. I thought you said starfish. <laughs> 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 Locust, yeah, we got, yeah. Yeah. Blood, yeah. Animals, dying. Now I've got down pestilence. That's pestilence, isn't it? I think. With all the, yeah. Yes, no. No, boils, yeah. Gnats. Gnats. Hang on. Gnats, flies, and locusts. Yeah. 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 So, blood, the ones I've got blood, frogs, gnats, boils, flies, pestilence, hail, locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn. That's 10. Yeah. And apparently, I, I, I'm, I haven't gone through all of these, but someone much more learned than me says each of these. Uh, plagues can be related to one of the gods of Egypt. So it's like, it's like um, different of the idols that they they had would be represented in the plague. So each time it was knocking a, a different idol on the head, if you like. Um, and obviously the final the final one of those the final one of those is is the death of the firstborn. And in many ways. That's, I mean, it's the hardest one for us to get our heads around, but also we're seeing Israel, in a sense, was God's firstborn. And so there is a symbolism, and already we'd seen at the beginning of the story how all the male children, all the Israelite male children have been killed. We then see, you know, how this judgment comes on the Egyptians but we also see the whisper of Christ, don't we? In the fact that Herod, you know, killed all the children under two and was trying to kill Jesus. So what we see again and again and again in Scripture is it's sort of whispers of us beginning to see Jesus as, in a sense, the fulfilment of Israel. The promise of Israel points to the person of Jesus, time and time, he is the temple. <laughs> he brings the kingdom, and here and here we see, when we see two things, we see one his um, just the persecution on him and trying to kill the children, but also the fact that they are in exile in Egypt, and the gospel writers go to great pains to say Jesus went in exile to <laughs> Egypt. So it's as if the gospel writers are deliberately defining Jesus, showing how Jesus is the fulfilment of the God story, the fulfilment of the story of Israel. So obviously we have um, that, the whole night of Passover, the deliverance from the judgment on the, uh, the firstborn for the Israelites. And uh, as you know, the, the, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb, was the blood from the lamb was put on and the angel of death would pass over those, those houses. So those um, children were, were delivered. Has anyone ever been to a Passover meal? Mm -hmm. yeah. have, you, have you had one here as a... Yeah. 
And what what do you remember of it? What were the what were the marks? What were the things? That, all I can remember is that you had to. Eat, is it salt you have to eat? Or something? Yeah, yeah. Mine didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah, bitter herbs, yeah. What were you, Rose? Huh? What were you? <laughs> you didn't kill a lamb, no. no. But um, so the Passover meal every year just reflects, you know, it celebrates and remembers a miraculous deliverance. I mean, just. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Well, just as the Armenians would celebrate and remember how God delivered them, so the Jews, this is their their story. And, uh, you know, what hit me is how much of it is around, you know, in, the, in these first parts of Genesis and, and onwards are about the child of deliverance. So you, you had Isaac was a miraculous birth, if you like, and the firstborn being protected. And again, pointing forward to the firstborn who would come and would actually be the Passover lamb would become the Passover lamb, not just for the Jews, but for the whole of humanity. And uh, the Moravians, who are a movement that, you know, is a, very much an inspiration to 24-7, and their, if you ever see that, their, their symbol is a lamb with a flag, and their, their motto their, is that the lamb that was slain shall receive the rewards of his suffering. So, you know, looking ahead to the, the Passover lamb to come. But for, as we're looking at the story at the moment, it's for the Jews delivering them from judgment. But there's a big difference between being delivered from judgment. You can be delivered from judgment but still be held in captivity. And this is where they were at the time. They had, you know, God, judgment had passed over, but no, none of their circumstances had changed. They were still slaves. And in the same way, it, you know, it's possible for us to be forgiven, but not actually live in the fulfilment of what that forgiveness is meant to mean to. We're meant to go a lot further than just being uh, forgiven. And so, what we move into near really in this sort of last little, last little, it's not, it's a few books, but last bit of, this, of our story for today is the transition out of slavery. So they've been free or forgiven, but they haven't been delivered out of slavery and that's called the exodus so uh, which again is the is a foundational event in the in israel's story passing through waters into freedom on the other side and that is our story as well our story is we were slaves we had nowhere to go you know our enemy was encircling us death was breathing down our necks and suddenly god makes a way that's their story they were literally just put, you know, all these, what is it, two million people on the edge of the water with an army coming down. You're slaves, so you you've got nothing. So you are totally helpless at that point. Totally helpless. And then suddenly, the water, and you start to, you start to walk over, you know, with Moses and Aaron at the head and so on. 
amazing. No wonder they made lots of films about it. But it's the same for us. You know, so we're, we're trapped with no hope. And, uh, and God brings deliverance. So it's a, it's a great story of how they fell out. But sadly, it doesn't stay great uh, for too long because they're into the wilderness. And um, again, they, were, they eventually were in the wilderness for 40 years. You look ahead to Christ, he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Again, defining himself as the fulfillment of the Israel story. So perhaps someone could read uh, Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6. <coughs> then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him on the mountain and said this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings, eagles wings and brought you to myself now if you obey me So, God's speaking to Moses, saying, you've been delivered, not just to be delivered, but you've been delivered to have an inheritance. You've been delivered with an identity. And you are a special chosen people. But he makes a point of saying, but, uh, you know, the whole world is special. You know, I love the world, but you have a special purpose. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, which, again is imagery that the New Testament writers pick up to the church, saying to the church, you are a holy nation, you are a royal priesthood, fulfilment of the Israel story. So they had that, they had a calling to have a really special identity that no people on earth, other than the Jews, have ever had a calling to, to this purpose and this role. And again, in some ways, to be the womb, the people that carry the promise that eventually is fulfilled in Christ. And the wilderness was not, the wilderness is not a destination. It's a transition. It's preparation. It's not meant to be a destination. But for a lot of the Israelites, it became their destination. They never got out of the wilderness. But the wilderness is meant to be a preparation. You pass through, you don't stay there. But we cannot go around it. We cannot avoid it. They had to go through the wilderness to get into the promised land. It would have been nice to have an easy jet flight that you could just get on and sort of skip over. You know, we'll go ahead, we'll do the wilderness bit, but the rest of you just follow, just get a flight a bit later and we'll see you in, in Canaan. It wasn't like that. They all had to go through it uh, together. And it was to shape and prepare... It, in my view, it was to build in a deep, instinctive trust in God. So that when they got into the promised land, their instincts had been forged in the wilderness. So again, if you get into twos, threes and fours, whatever, and just talk about what do you think, what is, 
What happened to the Israelites in the wilderness positively? What was it for? What is a wilderness experience for? In Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just three or four minutes. Okay, any, what have we come up with? Any, any groups want to throw anything out and come up with? Trust. Trust, yeah, very good. Yeah. I would say it's trust in two areas as well because one was trust in God's provision. Ah, sorry. So trust, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, trust. Yeah. 
That's I mean, let's just hold that a minute because I, I think I think that's really important. I think Jackie and I went to South Africa a few years ago with Etienne and Vilma Peak, if you remember Etienne. And they had a lady who, as a lot of South Africans do, who who was sort of um, had been nanny to the kids and had lived as part of their family. And um, as a lot of South Africans do, as sort of like they, I don't think you particularly get paid, or you don't get paid very much. And and uh, but she would, um, they bought her a house near her own family in Johannesburg for when she got near retirement age. Uh, but she wouldn't go and live there. She stayed with the peaks, and uh, and she would live in it. They had a, like a little cab cabin shed, little where she lived in the outside. And 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 I just found that interesting that there's almost like we've got a home now to live in, but she still stayed there. And interestingly, if if um, Wilma and the kids were there. She would come in and watch TV and just be part of the family. The moment Etienne came into the house, she would go out and start watching TV in her own little shed in the garden. And it, and it, you know, it showed me however much they were trying to sort of give her freedom. Her instinct was still a sort of slavery type instinct. So yeah, so going through the wilderness, it, the fact that you're at, you're no longer a slave doesn't mean you start acting differently. So trust and uh, the learning of the whole thing. Yeah, anything else? Just having time, because they've been part of another culture, so now they're having time for their identity. Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, so they're kind of stripping back of the other culture that wasn't there around them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, again, that's really important. You know, working in Eastern Europe, you know, one of the things you find is that the leadership style was often moulded by what it had been under communism, and people don't quickly learn a new leadership style of, you know, it's more direct. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, very good. Anything else? Provision. Yeah, the manner. And quails. But that wasn't necessarily part of the original plan, was it? And really sort of caved in on that because they were losing. Yeah. They probably enjoyed the quails though for a day. <laughs> What's for dinner? Doesn't seagulls don't sound quite as enticing as <laughs> quails, but maybe. Yeah, yeah, the presence, yeah, yeah. So the journey can take longer. Maybe we think, oh, we're going to be there, we're going to be there, we're going to be there. It was actually quite long. Yeah, yeah, and it became even longer. Yeah, no, it is. It had no. I think it. That's part of the trust, isn't it, with the guidance? Because there were no roads, <laughs> no signposts. It was literally fire and cloud, and you follow it, and there's no other bearings, no communities. So it's um, cool. Yeah. 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 Yeah
Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that nearly all those things that we're mentioning there are character things. There's something that you can't see externally, but you can see them internally. It's the way we're being forged. And, um, you know, I think uh, I'd, I'd got down, you got a lot more than I had, but provision, guidance, protection, and overcoming, the fact they could overcome their enemies towards the end of the time. They were learning how to over, you know, overcome enemies as preparation for when they were going into the, you know, the, the promised land. Um, but actually, if you think about it, there's nothing produced in that time. In terms of fruit, outside of internal character formation, there's no external achievements. There's nothing you can look and say, God has done this. You know, once they'd gone within a week, all trace of them being in the wilderness would have gone because the sand would have blown over and that would be it. It is purely about preparation and patience. You know, I know a season in my life, if another person had a word saying the Lord says wait, <laughs> I'd have probably punched them on the nose or whatever. <laughs> um, but again, you see marks of that in so many... You know, Jacob, I'm sure you looked last time, wrestled with God and then had a limp for the rest of his life. It was that mark to say you've been proven and broken and now you can be fruitful. And, um, and it, it is about the covenant identity, the sense of vocation out of all the nations we've been, we've been chosen and its preparation. And the other thing, obviously, practically that came was the Ten Commandments. Were, so the, the big picture, these ten principles, and out of that came all these other civic laws as they begin to learn as a people how, you know, it's okay to say you shall not cover it, you shall not commit adultery, but what happens if you do covet, what happens if you do commit adultery and that sort of thing and, and so they began to get all these civic civic rules and, and uh, the civic laws again, we haven't got time but if you look in, in uh, Exodus 24 they are sealed in blood and when they, when they got it all together they used blood as a seal to show that you know, this, is, this is completed and then finally the Ark of the Covenant the presence and um, this whole thing that once everything has happened, once we've been forged, once we've been shaped, <laughs> once we've got our laws, once we at the in the middle of that is the presence of God, and wherever we go, we carry the presence with us. He is with us. He is among us. And um, but could someone just read Exodus thirty-three sixteen to eighteen? Really. Because we'd had this thing where they rebel. We won't go into this for time, I don't think, very much. But the golden calf. So basically, the people began to drift. Most have been away a long time. So they thought, let's make an idol just to feel a little bit more secure. Aaron gets involved in that as well. So they make an idol. And then there's God's judgment comes because God says, you, one of his commands is, you shall have no other idols before me. And they've blown that one already. And um, But then you have this sort of, restoration period and this is Moses talking to God so Exodus 33 16 to 18 oh <laughs> how would anyone uh, go how would anyone know that you are pleased with him and with your people unless you go with us what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth and the Lord said to Moses I will do the very thing you have asked me because I am pleased with you and I know and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. 
So you have this little interaction where God says, okay, things are looking better now. Uh, I'll give you an angel to go with you. And Moses says, no, that's, I don't want, we don't want... How will anyone know we're distinctive? How will... You know, our story depends on your presence being with us. And if your presence has departed, or if we've got a secondary presence, then how are we different from anyone else? Our distinctiveness is around presence. So that is key, and it's something that you know, it goes right through to the New Testament, to the church, you know, the sense of the Holy Spirit coming and being a presence, a living presence at the heart of his, of his people. So then it goes, a um, little step forward, we have this, um, where it all goes a bit wrong, really, because they get to the edge of the fulfilment. And it wasn't that long. I, th I think it was probably around three years, something like that, or whatever it was they'd been wandering. And then they're on the edge of the promised land. And spies are sent in, 12 of them, to spy it out and come back and say, this is what you should do. And they come back and there's absolutely huge fruit. It's a great land. It's, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And then 10 of the 12 just say, but there are giants. We don't really don't think we can make it. And they sway the people. And, um, and you get judgment. So they end up wandering for another, whatever, 37 years. And apart from uh, Joshua and Caleb, none of the original people who came out from Egypt ever get into the Promised Land. Even Moses never gets there, or they just get to the, the edge of it. And so you have this whole wilderness wandering and, but again, all the time, there is still, even in that wandering, there's a seed of hope. There's Joshua and Caleb. There's, you know, God doesn't abandon, but he does delay, and a lot of people don't see what they hoped for. So I think we have two things there. One is the thing of we keep following the cloud. We have to keep following the leading of God, the presence of God. But the second is that even when we muck it up, God doesn't abandon us. His purposes will be fulfilled. It just may not. It just may be in a slightly different direction. The story I heard, of, I mean, this is about guidance, really, but they said that there's, in, in the Middle East, carpet makers, you have what you call a master carpet maker. So you have lots of usually young people doing all the weaving, and then you have a master carpet maker who's holding it all together. And as mistakes are made, they don't stop and say oh we've got to go back a bit because so and so mucked it up let's let him get it right no the master carpet maker just adjusts <coughs> things as it's going on and adjusts mistakes into the overall pattern so the pattern you get is is and that yeah and you can see the same with god really and you know we make our mistakes the israelites made their mistakes they rebelled they sinned but that is still woven into the big story that we're part of. So our personal mistakes, the times we fail, are just they just become a stepping stone to the next stage. But Caleb and Joshua uh, were the two that went in. I love, I mean, Caleb, probably because I'm getting on a bit, is one of my, you know, I'm mod uh, I, I read Caleb now and I just get inspired because he was like 80 years old and still <laughs> saying, I'm going to take my inheritance, you know, give me my inheritance. And uh, I'm as... I'm as this bit, I'm sure, was a lie. 
he just said, I'm as strong and fit as I was 40 years ago. This is at 80. He, he wasn't at all, but in his mind he was. It was almost like, let me at them, you know. So, um, so I, think, uh, I think that's a, that's a great... For those of us who are getting on a little bit in years, not looking in any particular direction or any particular person, uh, that's an inspiration. So let's um, just wrap it up a little bit, really, and... and just some points that I, I brought out, and then one, one quite lengthy reading will do. The wilderness was not the destination. It was the preparation. Uh, so we passed through the wilderness. The wilderness was to shape and prepare and give us, I think someone used the word trust, a deep, almost like instinctive trust. I mean, Jackie could tell you, Jackie, you know, as they were raised, and, you know, her father was travelling around ministering at you know, um, itinerant and so on. But until, what, mid-40s, mid there was no fixed salary, was there? Or no... He did have a proper job. But it would be, and they've got very... And they, some of the stories we tell are stories of, you know... Um, I remember Phil saying how there was no money coming in, so I thought, maybe I've got it wrong, maybe I need to go and... Um, you know, get a job and going off walking down to the job centre or whatever it was and meeting someone coming the other way with a gift, mm. you know, which, and sort of say, oh, I got that, you know, God still is providing. But I think what that's done for us is, is it, it's put in our marriage a deep, well, on Jackie's side, a deep instinctive trust in the provision of God that God provides. So we have wobbles, and well, I have wobbles, you know, and quite often, you know, if we talk it through, we'll pray or do whatever, but Jackie will then say, but has God ever failed us? Mm -hmm. And that's not just head noise, her upbringing was that. So I think in the same way with the Israelites, there was this deep instinctive trust God provides and so on, provides, guides, protects and overcomes. But then they're on the verge now of going into uh, the promised land and perhaps you could just read Deuteronomy 8. Uh, verses 1 to 20 and different people say different verses and follow through we're, we're coming into land now so Deuteronomy 8 1 to 20 
and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all your health is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. Beware lest you say in your heart, <clears throat> my power and the might of my hand have gone with this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. He may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. The Lord just destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Thank you. It's an amazing, I, I, I mean, that's an amazing chapter there. You know, if you get into their heads of they'd spent 40 years, manna, having to hit rocks to get water, fear of animals and so on around, and suddenly it's talking about you're going to settle you're going to build homes, you're going to earn wealth, you're going to have silver and gold, you're going to plant crops. And again, just as it was going from Egypt into the wilderness, going from the wilderness into the promised land is a huge change of thought. Because suddenly you don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, it's today a day we're going to have to uproot and move somewhere. You wake up and you're in your home and you're settling communities and you're beginning to possess the land. In the wilderness, you possess nothing. But you do experience the provision of God. But in the promised land, you possess the land. And you begin to bring God's kingdom into a place. And I think, so I think, you know, throughout our Christian lives, there are different phases where we have to change, you know, have to change our way of, of thinking. Certainly when I was younger, it was, it was often, um, you know, God providing money or God providing something to enable us just to get by and then suddenly you get into a situation where you've been blessed a little bit more or you've got something where you're able to bless others i remember when i turned 50 you know i one of the things i really felt god say was you spent 25 years believing for your own ministry and your own support i'd like you to spend the next 25 years investing in the ministry and support of others you know and it's it's changing that changing that mentality so um but you see why even, you know, the Jews, as they have prospered over the years, almost wherever they've gone, they've prospered. But once a year, the Passover meal and the sign is a remembrance of, is an attempt to remember we came from slavery and we came through a wilderness and we are dependent on God, not on, it's not done through our own hands and the same, the same is true 
of us. So um, I think that's it, really. I think um, what, we're, what we've seen in this section is a people coming to an understanding that they are blessed of all nations on earth. They have a unique calling and role. And already we're beginning to see the whispers of, you know, Israel is the, not just Mary was the womb for Christ, but also you can say Israel is the womb for the coming of the Christ, who is the fulfillment of the story. If you, if you like, we're in the fifth act <laughs> where the spirit of Christ mm -hmm. is working all over the world to bring the story to its completion. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you just for just being able to take time this morning to remember and to understand and to um, appreciate our story. And Lord, I, I, I pray for each one of us that uh, as we go into the coming week that there'll just be a richer and richer sense of we're part of a people. We are a holy priesthood, a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We have a calling to bring your presence uh, to the world around us. And thank you, Lord, that's just not something we thought up, but it goes back centuries. And thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that right throughout the story, Lord, is this thread of the blood of the Lamb. Who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.